At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard, start something priceless. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday to hear new stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Elise Fillmore in Calgary. Elise Fillmore is a queer and neurodivergent financial educator, content creator, and author. She's also the founder of Queered Company, a financial literacy firm. Her approach to financial literacy goes beyond the conventional, focusing on the intersectionality of identities and lived experiences. Elise is passionate about helping her online community of over half a million people find the right tools, strategies, and perspectives to create better lives where financial stability and joy can coexist. And beyond all that, Elise's new book, Keeping Finance Personal, comes out today, January 23rd, 2024. Elise, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're delighted to have you here. Congratulations on the book that's just come out. And uh, I, I, I hope it's been an exciting day for you. To start off, I'd like to ask, the, 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 ask you the question we ask everyone first on the Startup Canada podcast to let our entrepreneurial listeners who are very busy and choosy, to let them know that they should listen to us for the next half hour. What's the top piece of advice that you hope they will take away from our conversation today? I hope that the top thing that people take away from this conversation is that there is no right way to do anything when it comes to your money and that finance is so personal and that it's very important to understand your own money story, which is essentially the narratives and beliefs that you have around money and how those have impacted and informed your financial behaviors and patterns. And once you can understand that, then you can figure out the financial plan that's going to actually work for you and make sense for your values and goals and life. And that's why everyone's situation is going to be different and everyone's financial management system is going to be different. So that's what I hope people take away from this conversation. Fabulous. And do you, before we get into your work and your career, I'm just curious, do you have any particular insights into entrepreneurs and their personal financial uh, strategies? Any advice for them based on the, the people you've met and the, and the things they're doing or the mistakes they're making? I guess, would you like a more tangible financial tip? Because I can, <laughs> I can give that um, to no, you. I, I'm just wondering what, I'm just wondering, um, I have a theory about entrepreneurs and their money and I think they should pay more attention to it, but that's just a theory. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any experience that you want to share. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say to separate your business and personal finances as soon as possible, even if you're just, 
starting up a side hustle and you're not sure if it's even going to make money, I think that having that separation right from the beginning as an entrepreneur is very helpful. And I also think that investing in financial education and in like the proper tools for running your business and managing your money is like the best investment you can make as an entrepreneur, especially right at the beginning. Because if you aren't, you know, taking care of your money from the start, then there's so many problems that can arise that are going to be very hard to course correct years down the road. And from my personal experience, I, you know, I learned this from my own, my own journey, because when I first started, I didn't realize my business was going to blow up so quickly. And I did not have a lot of systems and like automations and things like that in place. Did not have the infrastructure to handle it because I wasn't thinking ahead. And I spent years trying to kind of play catch up to all of those, like setting up all of those foundations and systems. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about the your business and what are the parts that uh, that blew up in a good way? Yeah. So I am the founder of Queered Co., which is a financial literacy company. And it, you know, really my business kind of happened by accident a little bit. I, at the time, was working another job. I was working for the city that I lived in as a recreation technician, actually. So very, something very different. And then Mm -hmm. I was doing a little bit of life coaching on the side and I was helping primarily college students who had just recently graduated, who were, you know, just kind of being thrust into adulthood and were unsure what to do with their life and like how to get a career and how to manage their student loan debt. And I was kind of like helping college students figure that out. And then when the pandemic hit, I was laid off from my job and didn't have much else to do other than focus on kind of the side business that I had. And I started posting on TikTok and was posting a lot of content around, you know, having an emergency fund and what to do when you got laid off, because those things were, you know, happening to me and were also very applicable to other people. And that content just blew up so quickly. Like, I think my my first viral video, I gained something like 75,000 followers in, you know, wow. overnight or within like 48 hours. And yeah, by the end of that year, I had like, I don't know, I want to say like 300,000 followers on TikTok. So it just happened so quickly. And I wish that I had taken my business a little bit more seriously at the beginning, but I learned from that. And I, yeah, now have a lot better systems in place. <laughs> well, that's exciting. And and what does it, what, what form does the business take now? What kind of services do you provide? So it's, Primarily financial literacy. So education is like a lot of what we deliver. And that's in the form of like content creation, also in the book and in, you know, various free resources that we have. I also am looking this year to expand more into like speaking and going into schools. And I am helping develop a financial curriculum with an organization, things like that. But we also do provide courses We have self-led courses on just different kind of financial literacy topics like paying off debt and saving money and uh, working on your mindset around money. And then we also have our signature group coaching program, which is called the NeuroSpicy Money Method. And that is for folks who are neurodivergent. It's a money management course that will help you figure out the systems and tools that are going to work for your brain. And yeah, those are kind of, I guess, the, the main things right now for Queered Co. That's 
pretty ambitious. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, what great work you're doing. And you've, from the beginning, I think, you've been pretty open about your own challenges with money. Can you take us through your experience with money and with debt and, and, and what made finances, what made balancing that difficult for you? Yeah. I grew up in a household that didn't talk a lot about money and I did not learn any financial literacy from my parents or in school. And I think that's a story that's very common for a lot of people. And the only things that I remember my parents telling me about money was don't go into debt, save every penny you can and go to university and so you can get a good job. And so when I was in university and I ended up having to take out student loan debt to cover my tuition, I felt so much guilt and shame around that because it was kind of one of the main things that I was taught not to do. And that was kind of the first thing that really isolated me because I felt like I couldn't go to anyone about that. I couldn't go to my parents. And I, you know, at the time I was perceiving that my friends were not struggling when they actually were. So I also felt like I couldn't go to my friends. And then throughout university, I also racked up a lot of high interest debt um, and ended up graduating with a total of $35,000 in debt. 20,000 of that was student loan debt and 15,000 was high interest debt. And that high interest debt was largely because of impulsive spending and just buying like, I can't even tell you what most of that was spent on. Some of it was traveling, um, but like a lot of it was just, uh, just random spending. And that was largely because I had undiagnosed ADHD at the time and I didn't realize how much you know, I was using that as a coping mechanism and how much my brain was hardwired to kind of seek out more of that dopamine hit from shopping. So I graduated university. I had all this debt. I had a lot of shame around my money. I was just really struggling. And I ended up having a breaking point where I just realized, you know, I need to change something. I can't live like this anymore. And so I began to delve into financial literacy and learn more about finances, learn everything I could. And that definitely helped and led to some improvements. But I noticed that I was still really struggling with a lot of things. I was struggling still with impulsive spending. I couldn't really stick to a budget, even though I you know, was creating these budgets and was following these plans. I also was still struggling to pay bills on time and to you know remember to do things like cancel subscriptions. And it wasn't until I was diagnosed with ADHD and also when I began to embrace more parts of myself, like coming out as queer and just like understanding these parts of my identity that were really a pivotal part of who I was, that that's when I started to explore more about how those parts of me were affecting my money. And that's when I really began to see a lot of changes and you know, start to figure out the systems that were going to work for my brain and the reasons why things hadn't worked in the past. And I think that understanding of my own money story and like things that had been passed on to me by my parents, things I picked up along the way, and also things that were because I, you know, I'm living in a society that wasn't built for me as someone who's neurodivergent, that also allowed me to release a lot of the shame I felt because. I realized that so much of it wasn't my fault. And those are kind of the times that that really healed my relationship with money. And I think that something more recently that has helped is taking the certification program called the Trauma of Money. That has been a really amazing program um, that also inspired a lot of the research that I did in the book. I have a chapter that's completely dedicated to trauma and money. And that also really helped because there was 
a lot of aspects that I didn't realize from my life that were affecting my money, even though they were experiences that weren't connected to my money at all, they were still showing up in my relationship with my money. And that course was really interesting to learn about those perspectives and have those conversations and like dive into more research about that. So it's, it's definitely been a journey, (laughs) but um, yeah, I've, I've, I've been the one struggling, like living paycheck to paycheck and feeling a lot of guilt and shame. And I've uh, come a long way and now I just want to help other people do the same thing. Wow. That's uh, so much to, to, to take in. So many interesting <laughs> thoughts in there. Um, one of the things that you talked about was you thought your friends weren't struggling financially in sort of similar ways to you. Did you find later on that they were struggling? Yes. Yeah. And that's actually you know, that's something I talk about a lot is how much we don't talk about money is making everyone feel more shameful, I feel like about their money. And it just causes this mentality within like North American society that if you're struggling with your finances, that it's somehow your fault, like it's an individual problem. It's like, it's because of your choices. When in reality, like so many people's struggles are due to like larger societal systems and like inflation, cost of living, like lack of mental health support, like I could go on, there's so many. And so many people are struggling. But on the outside or like on social media, they're not presenting it because they're also perceiving everyone else to be doing better than them. And so they don't want to be the one that's like, perceived to be struggling. And so everyone's kind of putting on this front of like, I'm doing fine. I'm doing good. Like, look at these milestones that I'm reaching. And yeah, in reality, so many people are struggling with the exact same thing that you're struggling with. And this has been, you know, something that's really powerful about having a group program, especially for neurodivergent folks is that that's one of the biggest pieces of feedback that I hear when people get on the group calls and start sharing their experience is that they'll just always tell me, I didn't realize like how many other people were experiencing the exact same thing. And I think that that also helps. It just helps take away some of that guilt when you realize like so many other people are facing the same thing and it's not just me. It's not like an individual problem. It's such a liberating concept, but it's also empowering because it, 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 you know, it, it helps you realize maybe it's not me. Maybe there are other things we have to do and it, it, you know, taking the personal blame or whatever out of it, uh, hopefully frees you up to actually start solving things. How did you find out that your friends, your peers were struggling? Did you ask them? Yeah. I, once I started to delve more into financial literacy, I started to learn more things and like listen to to more people's experience, I, that kind of gave me like a little bit of confidence to start having conversations with my friends. And it was definitely a more casual sense. I would initially start with kind of making comments about my own situation and kind of being like, oh, I don't think that, you know, I, I have enough money to go do that event or like, I'm, you know, want to put my money to savings instead. Or like, I would just start making comments like that. And I found that that really actually opened the door for them to feel more comfortable to then say stuff to me. And then it was kind of this like funny realization of like, you know, everyone's like, oh, let's go out to like do this thing or go out to dinner. Right. And then 
once one person kind of breaks the seal and says, oh, I don't, I don't really want to spend money on that right now, that everyone else is like, oh, me neither. <laughs> like, let's wow. go do something else. And then you're kind of realizing like, oh, everyone, everyone else also, you know, wants to put their money to savings and like pay off their debt. And it's just like kind of normalized that we would still go out and do these things. So uh, yeah, it's, it was really interesting to, to Yeah. And that's the power of sharing stories, isn't it? That's fabulous. Another thing that you mentioned was in your own experience, and I'm wondering if you just talk about it a little bit more, you, you talked about spending as a coping mechanism. Can, can, can you just help us understand what that means? Yeah. So this can show up so many ways for so many people, and you definitely do not have to have ADHD for this to affect you. But for me personally, because I do have ADHD, um, that actually means that I have lower than, le- lower than average dopamine levels in my brain. And that means that I'm more hardwired to seek out dopamine. So, so basically because my brain always has less dopamine, it always wants more dopamine. And so I'm like more likely than someone who's neurotypical to like be constantly seeking out a way to get dopamine. And And that means sort of pleasurable experiences and sensations. Yes. Yeah. So it's anything from like, you know, having a good cup of coffee, eating a bag of chips, like watching a TikTok video, like it's, it just releases this feel good hormone in your brain and just makes you feel good. And so your brain craves more of that. And for me, shopping was something that gave me a lot of dopamine and, and shopping's actually interesting because it's one of the activities where you get dopamine when you're just anticipating it. Then you also get dopamine when you, you know, swipe your card and buy the item. And then if you bought something in person, you also get dopamine when you go home and get to use it or if you ordered online, you also get dopamine as you're waiting for the package to arrive. So it's like the whole journey of it, it just is right, checking those dopamine. notifications for delivery, just two days, just one day. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's like, it's like being in a casino or something like there's just, there's so many things that are like stimulating about it. And what happened for me is that it became this coping mechanism where anytime that I felt understimulated, like basically bored. If I felt bored, if I felt stressed, if I felt tired, uh, my brain is like screaming for, for some stimulation. And so I started shopping and then that became essentially a habit where every single time that I was feeling bored, I was immediately craving shopping because like my brain associ- it was associating that with the hit of dopamine. And that, that can happen to anyone is that you create this habit loop around that behavior and then it becomes subconscious. So you don't even realize that it's happening. And that's also like, you know, how addiction can form as well. But that was what was happening for me. It, it became this way for me to cope with kind of any negative feelings that I was having or any, um, you know, on the, the pleasure and pain kind of scale, any sort of discomfort that I was feeling, I was coping with shopping because it was one of the easiest ways for me to get a hit of dopamine and a consistent way for me to get it. And I knew it was going to make me feel good every time. And it was something, you know, it's, it's so accessible. I can just pull up my phone and order something. I can go to the store down the street. Like it's, it's really easy to access. And so, um, yeah, that was just a, a really big problem for me. And that, that was something that I was just using to shove down a lot of the feelings that I didn't want to deal with. Right. And the diagnosis of ADHD helped you be aware of this psychological need, but did it also help you deal with it? Or is that another thing entirely? Yeah. I mean, another thing entirely, but the diagnosis was really helpful in just understanding 
how my brain is different. And another big thing that a lot of neurodivergent folks struggle with, not just people with ADHD, is an impact to what's called your executive function, which is a essentially the manager of your brain. So that's the part of your brain that's responsible for you know, planning something, setting a goal, executing it, like kind of managing all the moving parts. And so when that part of your brain is affected, you have trouble doing all of those things, which is basically involved in every single thing to do with your finances. So that was also why I was really struggling to pay bills on time because I was constantly forgetting about them because my executive function was impaired and I just like would forget things all the time. Uh, and then that also explained, you know, the, the impulsive shopping was explained partly by, you know, just some some aspects of ADHD, but also largely because of the dopamine thing that I talked about before. And this also made sense why, you know, I procrastinated certain tasks or avoided certain tasks. And it just, it led to a greater understanding of how my brain worked. And then in terms of how it was connected to my finances, there actually is still hardly any information out there, which is a large reason why I started talking a lot about it and have made that a huge part of my business. Because when I went, you know, on Google to try to find some resources, there's hardly anything. And a lot of the resources there are ironically very not ADHD friendly. It's just like a white website with like this giant blob of text telling you about something like something that is very boring to read that it's going to be hard for me to consume. And so that actually came from me sorry, the the connection to how it impacted my finances actually came from me like doing a lot of research into ADHD itself and how it affected your brain in different areas. And then from there, you can, you know, make the connection of how it's affecting your finances. And there, there is some um, scientific articles out there, some research studies done on it. So I, of course, read all of those. And yeah, then I just started to, to talk about it more and to kind of do my own, you know, research into it. And that's what really led to me figuring out more of the connections between money and ADHD and being able to, you know, figure out where those behaviors were stemming from and how to create systems that were going to help me manage those. And were you able to stop the spending and, and, and uh, control those impulses? Yeah, I, I was. And, you know, that, that understanding of the whole, the dopamine cycle has been really helpful because I can now understand in a lot of times what my brain is craving is dopamine, but it's not like it doesn't need to be solved by shopping. And so I actually learned this concept from the YouTube channel called How to ADHD. And it was a video with Eric Tivers. They came up with this concept and it's called the dopamenu. And the idea is that you have this kind of quote unquote menu of different activities that will give your brain dopamine. So you have your appetizers, which are very short activities that take like five to 10 minutes. Then you have your mains, which are activities that take longer, like 30 minutes plus, couple hours. Then you have your sides, which are activities that you can kind of add on to any other activity. And then your dessert, which are activities that give you dopamine, but you don't necessarily want to indulge in all the time. And so this was like such an amazing tool for me because then I was able to have this like visual of all these different things that give me dopamine so that when I was having that craving, I could just go to this dopamine and say, okay, what's another way that I can get dopamine right now? And then in the long term, you're really rewiring that behavior so that I'm no longer craving the response of shopping. It's going to be something else that's going to give me dopamine that's not going to 
empty my wallet. (laughs) Um, So that was really helpful. And then also just like understanding when you understand kind of the process your brain is going through, then you can also put up barriers to basically make executing the response, which is shopping more difficult. So things like, you know, removing your credit cards off of your Apple pay and off of auto pay on your computer, uh, you know, deleting or unsubscribing from marketing emails that are going to tempt you with things, giving yourself kind of a 24 hour rule to keep things in a cart for 24 hours before you buy. Uh, Mm. Just like things like that, like learning how to put up more barriers because then I had a greater understanding of like what was, you know, triggering some of these cravings and what was responsible for certain things. So um, I should have talked to you years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I love that idea of putting something in the cart and waiting 24 hours because 24 hours later, you've forgotten you even wanted the thing. (laughs) Yes. And another thing kind of in line with that is, is wishlist. I'm a huge fan of making wishlist. You can do this like visually on Pinterest or like even just having a note note on your notes app, or if you want to, you know, be more database, you can do kind of a Excel sheet, but I'll put down anytime I want something, I'll add it to the wish list, and then I'll keep note of every additional time I want that thing. So then if I notice that I'm thinking about this thing for like months or like for a long time, then I'm like, okay, this is something that isn't just a whim, like spur of the moment thing that I want. It's something that I actually have been thinking about for a while. So then I, I don't feel guilty buying it because I know that it's something that I've been thinking about. But sometimes just the act of adding something to my wish list is enough to kind of give me a little hit of dopamine that's like, oh, it's kind of like window shopping. <laughs> like you you put it in there, but you don't actually pull the trigger. Right. So tell me how it's been for you. You've, you, you've, you've moved from um, dealing with your own financial situation to helping other people deal with theirs. So how is how has that transition from um, lab rat to uh, <laughs> expert been for you? Yeah, something something that I noticed when I started working with clients and getting a lot of application forms was just how different everyone's situation was. Like in, in some ways, like obviously there's a lot of things that people were struggling with the same things, but I mean, in terms of their background, their identity, they had, you know, everyone, there was a very diverse group of people that were applying for my programs. And I was really interested to find that there was actually a lot of people that were living a very privileged life and had enough money to afford their cost of living and, you know, to live a very comfortable life, but were still struggling with their finances. There was also this group of people that had tried a lot of these different financial tools in the past, had maybe even like read books or taken programs before and like tried out a lot of these systems. And again, they were still struggling. And so this also helped with the realization of, it's not just about the numbers and all of these people. I can't just apply a system that worked for me to them because everyone is like, has such different backgrounds and lifestyles and goals and and things like that. So that's been something that has been a really important part of my business from the beginning is keeping finance personal, which is why that's the title of my book. But that's something that I really practice with my clients as well is like, I obviously have some strategies and methods that I think work really well that I will recommend to my clients, but I very much am like checking in throughout the whole process of like, does this make sense for you? Does this make sense with your brain? Um, You know, is this going to work for your life goals and your lifestyle and your, the plan that you want and really making sure that 
everything we do is catered to their individual situation. So in terms of the transition for me, it was just really learning how to listen and create a safe space for them to open up about their struggles, open up about their goals and their dreams, and then figure out how we can create a plan that's going to be unique to them and not just, uh, you know, applying a system, which is something that I, I see a lot of other, you know, financial educators or advisors doing is like they have their kind of one method and that's kind of what they will apply to everyone with like very small tweaks but i'm very much like let's build this plan from the ground up based on what's going to make sense for you so yeah that's i guess been the biggest thing with the transition is just like um really learning to to stop take a second listen and to personalize everything based on the person right right um in the work that you do dealing with people with a wide variety of identities what roles do you find that things like um, gender roles, wage gaps, and mental health play in these people's lives and their relationship with money? So all of those things have varying impacts depending on the person, their identities, the context. But I think something that is common with all of those is that it presents a barrier for folks. And Anytime you're faced with a barrier like this, it's it's something, it's just an additional thing that you have to overcome, an additional thing that you have to, I shouldn't say overcome, additional thing that you have to think about whenever you're thinking about your money. And a lot of these things like, you know, the wage gap, it, those are going to be things that me as an individual, I can't just go and change that overnight. Like these are large systems that are ingrained in society that we really need to like burn down to the ground and rebuild. And so I think as discouraging as it is, it's also empowering to know like there are certain things that I am in control of and there's also things that I'm not in control of. And it kind of goes back to that. This is not my fault. It's not a personal problem. And this understanding of like, okay, based on the barriers that I'm facing or based on the privilege that I have or don't have, how can I then make decisions about my money, like taking that into consideration on how it affects the way that that person moves through the world and, you know, the way that their access to opportunities or the, their ability to build wealth, how does it impact those things? And then what are things that are within your control that can help you kind of like mitigate those barriers or, you know, navigate them in a different way or work to advocate to change those in the future? And I think that it just provides a greater understanding of what like what that person's money story is and what their struggles are and how that will inform the way that they move forward and how they manage their money. So when I when I speak to clients with different marginalized identities, I think that that that's the biggest piece is just like we need to acknowledge that these barriers exist. I'm not the type of financial coach that that just like is like, you know, people are going to have barriers, but just power through. You just got to like, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm not the, the toxic positivity financial coach. I'm like, we need to acknowledge that these exist because they're very real. And some of these barriers are debilitating. But once we acknowledge them, then we can figure out like, what is the best way for us to move forward? And what can we do within the constraints that you're working with? And I think that um, is ultimately very empowering for clients, for people, because they are really taking some of the power back into their hands of like, okay, what can I do? And also I think just like, again, removing a layer of shame to be like, 
this is out of my control. And so I'm just, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to spend mental energy, like wishing things were different. I'm going to work on changing it and work on like working within that system. Right. I, I got to ask you, um, I, there's a huge financial industry out there um, from the big banks and stockbrokers to all sorts of individual advisors and everything. Are, is there any way that you can help get the lessons you've learned into their worldviews to make those organizations a little bit more diverse and empathetic? You know, I, I think there is, and this has been a goal of mine. I would love to do consulting with some of the big banks. I have had the opportunity to be in conversations with some of them, and I am optimistic that they are open to having these conversations and to changing things in the future. I think that it's going to take a long time to like, it's just a restructuring of everything and kind of a, you know, you have to ultimately kind of change the company culture a little bit to be like, this is what is important. This is what we value. This is how we're going to present ourselves to the public. And like, that's a lot of things to change, but I, yeah, I'm hopeful that it will happen in the future. Maybe, maybe this year. 2024. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be nice if 2024 is the year of change <laughs> and things like this. Your mission is to keep finance, not just personal, but feminist, queer, inclusive, and accessible. And these aren't words we generally associate with money and finance. What, 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 what do these concepts look like in practice to you? These concepts impact every kind of layer of my business. I would say kind of starting from the start, marketing is a big one in terms of like inclusivity and accessibility. So I'm very aware of like the language that I'm using and the content that I'm putting out, like who is it speaking to, but also largely who is it excluding? Like who would see my content and maybe feel uncomfortable? I feel like it's not a safe space for them. Um, and largely talking about marginalized identities here because I recognize that my my space isn't exactly a safe space for um, straight cis men, but they, you know they're fine. They've got a lot of spaces. So paying attention to the marketing and the language I'm using, I have worked with a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner. Um, I had them on retainer last year, and they also did quarterly trainings with my team. So that was really helpful for us to like learn how to like how the things that we're presenting and what we're putting out into the world, how it can be more inclusive. So the marketing is a piece of it. Uh, also on the accessibility side, the way that I'm presenting information and something that I feel like sell at is taking these complex financial concepts and then breaking them down into very digestible, bite-sized, like fun pieces of content. And that makes financial education a lot more accessible. And that is, I think, largely why my platform grew so fast on TikTok when it did because there wasn't a lot of people creating content mm -hmm. like that. There's a lot more now, which is amazing. But at the time, it wasn't, you know, <laughs> I was making videos where I was doing a little trending dance and then putting up like text of some sort of financial education, which is like just not something that we had seen before. And so that was like, that's a way that finance can be made more accessible. I think the language is a barrier for a lot of people because when you're you know, starting to learn about something that you've never learned about before. And then there's suddenly all this like financial jargon being thrown at you. It's automatically like a wall is going to go up and you're going to be more hesitant to continue. So that's another big piece of it. I also think in terms of the book, 
It meant uh, having a lot of interviews with a lot of people with diverse backgrounds and lived experiences and including those interviews in the book. It was really important to me that it wasn't just about my lived experience because I understand that my experience is very narrow. So I included a lot of different voices and stories and opinions, people that have very different financial responsibilities and cultures and family dynamics and things like that. Um, And I think that that's also like elevating those marginalized voices is also a really powerful way to make finance more inclusive and accessible. And yeah, I think those are some of the big things. Also, just like being really mindful of anything I'm putting out, that it's something that my community is wanting and like really listening to my community and responding to them and um, making sure that I cultivate relationships with my community. And yeah, (laughs) I'm sure that there's a lot more, but (laughs) I'm like (laughs) drawing a blank at the moment. (laughs) Right now, I'll tell you what every entrepreneur took away from that. 300,000 followers on TikTok. What's that <laughs> worth per month? <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's a share, lot different is, is, now. <laughs> is money to be made on TikTok? <laughs> it's so interesting because TikTok was like my main platform for a long time because it, it grew so quickly. And I was, you know, it was, I was making a lot of money on TikTok in terms of brand deals. Uh, but now my, you know, TikTok has just been difficult for me lately and the engagement, everything has gone way down and, that's happened for a lot of people that grew during the pandemic because a lot of their audience like went back to work and just like, isn't online as much. Uh, And I've I've heard that from a lot of other people. And also just like, I think the content that does well has changed and maybe I'm not keeping up with it in the same way, but I've actually found that Instagram has been more profitable for me lately. And also just more, I feel like I can really connect to the community there. TikTok is really hard because you don't have the same tools like, on Instagram, you have like the question boxes and the polls and like there's just way more ways to connect with people and you don't really have that on TikTok. So um, yeah, I think a big audience, there's pros and cons because it, yeah, yeah, you can still make, you can still make a lot of money with a small audience. And I think it's sometimes it's, it's better actually, because you might have a more engaged audience and an audience that, um, you know, listens and trusts you more. Cause sometimes when you get a big audience, it's like, you don't, you don't know the people anymore. <laughs> they just become so big. <laughs> right, right, right. So let's yeah. talk about your book, which is being published today, in case we didn't mention that earlier. Um, the book is Keeping Finance Personal, and the subtitle is Ditch the Shoulds and the Shame and Rewrite Your Money Story, which is exciting. I love really creative and long subtitles. <laughs> it's been called a shame-free, trauma-aware approach that explores the complex, nuanced, and deeply personal relationship between your identity and your money. That's pretty exciting. Looking at the table of contents, we see that you get into cultivating safe money spaces, your sense of self and spend and your spending, and gamifying finances. Can you tell us a little bit more about these three things? Cultivating safe money spaces, your sense of self and your spending, and gamifying finances. Yeah, so... The first one is chapter one, which is called Safe and Sound, Elise's version, which is a Taylor Swift reference for all my Swifties out there. Oh, I guess I should have known that. It's okay. And that chapter is all about the importance of finding safe spaces and what constitutes as a safe space for you. 
And I knew from the very beginning that I wanted this as chapter one because it is nearly impossible to learn about money in a space that is does not feel safe for you. And so in that chapter, I talk about like identifying what is a safe space. I talk about the impact of unsafe spaces. I tell a personal story of me going to a financial advisor that was just awful and made you know, misogynistic comments to me and was very condescending and how that impacted my financial journey. And I give readers an exercise that I can share now, a little sneak peek, where I I get you to think about your red and green flags when it comes to spaces. So your red flags are going to be things that signal to you that that space is unsafe. And it might be obvious things like things that you can see or hear or, you know, they tell you explicitly it's on their website or whatever, or it could also just be feelings that you pick up on or slight microaggressions or things like that. So you write this list of kind of all your red flags and then you, for your green flag list, some of them are just kind of the opposite of the red flags, but then the green flags also include basically your wish list of what would be the best things in a space that would make me feel so comfortable and would represent, you know, my identity and my lived experience and just be like a space that I just felt so good in. And once you have those two lists, then anytime you are entering a new space and that can be going to a bank, seeing a financial advisor, that can also just be following someone new on Instagram or, you know, applying for certain jobs. Like it can apply to any setting in your life. You can then kind of, take a run through your red and green flags and assess, you know, does this place have any red flags? Do they have my green flags? And that can kind of help you really assess if that space is safe. And that is just so key when it comes to money, because when you feel safe in a space where you're learning about money, then you're going to feel safe to ask questions, to share your experience. You're not going to have a fear of judgment. And that's just going to be so key in helping you remove the shame that you might feel around your finances. So that's the first one. And then the second chapter that you mentioned was how your identity or your sense of your self sense impacts. of self and your spending. Yes. So that is chapter two, which is little miss identity crisis. And it is all about the connection between your identity and your money. So the first part of that is really understanding what your identity is And I talk about the parts of your identity that are visible to others, which would be like your skin tone, your age, um, you know, if you, your height, maybe potentially your socioeconomic status, things like that, that people can perceive kind of by looking at you. And then I also talk about the parts of your identity that are invisible, that might be, you know, mental health challenges, or if you have an invisible disability, or just like things about yourself that people wouldn't know just by looking at you. And those visible identities impact the way that you move through the world and the privilege that you are subjected to or the barriers or systems of oppression that you're subjected to. And that's going to obviously impact your relationship with money. And then the parts about yourself that others can't see also affects your relationship with money, but in a different way. And so helping you understand what your identity is and then how that's informed your spending behaviors. So are you spending in a way that is embracing your identity and who you are? Or are you spending money in a way to, because you want to belong to a certain group of people, you want to fit in more? Or are you trying to escape or run away from a part of your identity and you're spending money 
to kind of cover up that part of your identity. And an example from my life is when I was kind of grappling with being queer and coming out as queer, I was spending a lot of money to appear a different way and to present myself in a different way in terms of like getting my hair done and my makeup and the clothes I was wearing. And I was like trying to appear very like hyper feminine, um, appeal more to the male gaze, which nothing wrong with, with those things, but it just wasn't me. That's not my style. It's not the way that I like to, to dress or like the things I like to do. And I was just doing that in an attempt to escape that part of my identity. So I challenge readers to explore, you know, how their identity has impacted their spending behaviors and how they might be making decisions. And it's, yeah, one of my favorite chapters, because it's something that I feel like people just don't make the connection between very often. And it's, brought up a lot of interesting discussions from people so far that have read the book. So I'm excited to see what other people think of it. And then we have our last chapter, which was um, keep it neuro spicy. And it was tips and tricks to gamify your finances. So that chapter is entirely dedicated to ADHD and money. But I will say that it is very applicable, even if you don't have ADHD, because I talk a lot about the tips and tricks to gamify your finances, which basically just mean making your finances more fun, finding ways to inject dopamine into your financial system so that they're more enjoyable and more sustainable. And you just, you know, it's, it's a more integrated part of your life and it doesn't feel like such a chore or such as like big, difficult, scary thing. It can become more of this like fun, enjoyable thing that you're actually maybe excited about and looking forward to and, that's like, you know, a big part of that chapter. And then there's also some stuff with like your ADHD brain and the certain behaviors and habits and how to kind of work with that. And although a lot of them are, you know, very relevant for folks with ADHD, it's also relevant for folks without because a lot of those behaviors still show up for neurotypical folks. It's just they don't show up to the same extent or to the same degree, but there's still things that people struggle with, like forgetting things or, um, you know, coping with shopping and struggling sticking to a budget and things like that. So yeah, those are, that's a quick, I guess not so quick <laughs> breakdown. That sounds fascinating. Are there other books in you or, or did you put everything you had into this one? Oh, I, I already have my second book planned. Yeah. So, but we'll see because I very burnt out from the first one, but I do have, <laughs> I do have another book that I, I've already written in my head. So <laughs> well, we'll invite you back for that one then. We'll yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And at least looking forward, what, what's the future of your business? Do you think? I think the future of my business is just continuing to spread this message of, you know, finance is so personal and we need to like recenter the person when we're, we're talking about financial education. And so basically the, what I wrote in the book, but like, getting that message out to more people. So I think more public speaking, more like hopefully going into schools. Um, I mentioned earlier, like I would love to work on curriculums to get this into part of the educational curriculum. So people are learning this in school and yeah, really just like as much as I can helping people get their hands on the book and learn more about this, you know, shame-free trauma aware approach to money. And that can, hopefully, you know, be adopted into like the big banks and things like that in the future so that we can have a more inclusive financial industry moving forward. 
Right. Well, I wish you tremendous luck in terms of uh, getting the message out, uh, selling lots of books, but it also, you know, especially teaming up with uh, the, the big institutions that control so much of the financial world and help get the message of diversity and inclusion and, 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 and helping people <laughs> into their lexicons as opposed to just charging people without money more money than the people who have money. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. Okay. Any final advice when it comes to entrepreneurship or authorship? Because lots of entrepreneurs want to write books. So we'll take either one. Yeah, I think if you if you identify that there's a gap somewhere, if you feel like there's something you're struggling with that isn't being addressed, it's probably worth pursuing. And there's probably other people out there that are also struggling with that. So, you know, you notice this gap, like go for it, try to fill the gap and see what happens. <laughs> I've got to ask you, um, does, does this stuff manifest itself? So that the more you focus on and think, okay, I'm going to um, serve, you know, this market that's been overlooked. Have you found that this market is, you know, even bigger than you thought that there's more people around who identify with the problem you're solving? Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, just even ADHD and money, like there are so many folks that have ADHD and that are struggling with their finances because of some of the aspects of ADHD, but then no one's ever brought that up to them. Like no one's ever been like, hey, how do you think maybe your ADHD has affected your money? Like they, they just haven't made that connection. And so I found like since I started talking about it, it's just like people coming out of the woodwork. Like it's just, there's so many more people like each time that are like, oh my gosh, no one's ever mentioned this before. And like, this is exactly me. And like, I resonate so much with this. So yeah, I feel like, again, if you notice that there's a really big gap on something, like may maybe it's just you, but <laughs> more than likely there's probably going to be more people. And then like the more that you talk about it, it'll gain traction and it will get to the people that need to see it. And that's also just happened just on a whole for my financial education, because I think there's more and more people who are just kind of getting fed up with some of the traditional financial advice and feeling frustrated that like they're following these prescribed formulas for success, but not seeing that success. And so they're like, what else is going on? And I think people are starting to get more curious about like, there's something else happening. And so I've also noticed an increase in that sense. So yeah, I think it's worth talking about the things that you notice that are, that are missing. Right. That's very reassuring and very empowering. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Elise Fulmore, ADHD finance and business coach, uh, and her new book has just come out, so be sure to check that out, Keeping Finance Personal. Congratulations on the book, Elise, and thank you again. Thank you so much, and you can now get Keeping Finance Personal at all major book retailers, so go order your copy. <laughs> Right. And support the independent book retailers. Yes. He added. <laughs> yes. Oh, there it is available at a lot of indie bookstores as well. And if you go to my website, I have links for all the independent bookstores. So go and support those. Where will we find that website? It's www.queeredco.com slash book. Beautiful. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence.